listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. All right, we've looked at some of the the preparatory material related to the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. Now we want to look actually at how did Edwards preach doctrine. Uh, None would doubt that Edwards was full of doctrine and apt instruction, strategically employing the tool of reason, and that from a literary standpoint, his appeals to the conscience and heart were incomparably compelling. Some doubt exists, however, concerning how effective Edwards was in delivery. With contemporaries so naturally gifted as Whitfield, Tennant, and Davenport, Edwards probably would not be considered among the first rank of dramatic preachers. Granting that, I would still argue that Edwards was committed in theory to a delivery style commensurate with the importance and the urgency of his subject. The next section is entitled, Stomping and Shouting. In his life of Jonathan Edwards, Samuel Hopkins observes, though he was wont to read so considerable a part of what he delivered, yet he was far from thinking this the best way of preaching in general and looked upon his using of his notes as a deficiency and infirmity. And in the latter part of his life was inclined to think it had been better if he had never accustomed himself to use his notes at all. In his profoundly provocative introduction to Edwards' New York sermons, Wilson Kimnitch provides manuscript evidence that Edwards worked diligently to secure a style of preaching suitable for oratorical presentation. The manuscript prepared for the publication of his first printed sermon, God Glorified in Man's Dependence, shows differences from the manuscript used in its delivery. This is even more strikingly true in comparing the different recensions of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sometimes these changes for publication indicate Edwards' awareness that he is much better better in print than in person and that his peculiar field of influence was to be the printed page. An argument could also be made that these differences Uh, that these differences indicate a style of delivery designed to arrest the attention of the auditory and enhance the power of vocal delivery. In addition, they show sensitivity to the demands of his immediate pastoral charge. The earlier sermons include marks in the manuscripts to remind Edwards of the necessity of liveliness and to create the opportunity for extemporaneity. Chemnitz argues that the marks can only be explained in terms of pulpit delivery. He says, apparently Edwards desired to make his delivery more dynamic and flexible, and the pickup line was his compromise for the time between reading and memorator delivery, placed between each sentence a phrase containing a major thought or illustration, the lines enabled Edwards to do at least two things. First, he could look up from the manuscript more easily without losing his place or without as much careful review of the sermon just before preaching. Second, the lines would make his delivery more flexible in a formal sense. If he desired to speak extemporaneously within the context of the written sermon, or if he desired to leave out certain sections for some reason, the lines would provide so many handles, subdividing the text of the written sermon by which he could adjust 
the relationship between the sermon as written and the sermon as spoken. These observations about literary style serve only to underscore what Edwards himself argued about the manner of preaching. Edwards' mythical mildness and detachment in delivery was entered as a polemical device in the early 19th century in an effort to shame the perpetrators of the wildness of the camp meeting revival on the frontier. In his complete history of Connecticut, civil and ecclesiastical, Benjamin Trumbull devotes well over 100 pages to the New England awakening of the 18th century. He reports that Edwards calmly read the sermon and responded to his listener's spiritual distress with a request that they be silent so he could be heard. Such an example should, would, sh should shock the shameless Methodists in greater, into greater order and decorum. Edwards' own testimony makes the construction of a different scenario possible. After delivering Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in Enfield, Connecticut, in July 1741, Edwards heard of rising complaints about the supposed sensationalism of awakening preaching. Supposedly, preachers raised the affections of the congregations too high. It was probably not only in defense of his friends, Whitfield and Tennant and others, that Edwards argued for the necessity of lively preaching. An insipid, dry kind of delivery utterly betrayed the magnitude of the issues at stake. To those who complained, Edwards asked if the affections were raised by the truth and if the height of raising was justified by the importance of the subject. If the subject by its own nature, worthy of a very great affection, is by its own nature worthy of a very great affection, Edwards observes, then speaking of it with very great affection is most agreeable to the nature of the subject or is the truest representation of it and therefore has the most tendency to beget true ideas of it in the minds of those to whom the representation is made. For his own part, Edwards expressed the desire to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but the truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of the subject. <clears throat> to those under a sense of misery, Edwards will offer no false comfort. I'm not afraid to tell sinners who are most sensible of their misery that their case is indeed as miserable as they think it to be and a thousand times more so, and this is the truth. Too many of his day focus narrowly on extent of learning, strength of reason, and correctness of method and language. But for the most proportionate correctness of perception, the people needed something else. Men may abound in this sort of light and have no heat, Edwards judged. Our people do not so much need to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched. Now you understand that he's speaking in the midst of a Puritan New England where people were uh, stored up with doctrine under the, this, the, uh, under the method of preparationism. And so Edwards is not... In, in any sense diminishing the importance of doctrinal instruction, but he's talking in a particular situation where he was seeing that people were trusting on the, the fullness of their knowledge without any, any sensible recognition of its importance. And that's the context of his, of his saying that our people do not need so much to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched. He argued that Scripture presents a different mode of preaching from that highly touted by the established clergy of his day. 
Cry aloud, lift up the voice like a trumpet, the Lord told Ezekiel. Smite with the hand and stamp with the foot were further instructions, all with the intent of enforcing the infinite importance of the message. A large number of other scriptures command, exhort, and predict a crying out in gospel proclamation, giving the clear impression that a most affectionate and earnest manner of delivery in many cases becomes a preacher of God's word. <clears throat> so Edwards wrote. <clears throat> now, enforcing the truth. <clears throat> uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, in his article, Edwards and the New England Theology, contends that the richest fruit of Edwards' studies came in his preaching. A single Edwards sermon is a marvel of doctrinal instruction. Each is a study, is a study in incisive, elaborate, and detailed statements of doctrinal truth, replete with all the necessary distinctions and historical allusions. Though much of the precision and fullness of argument was fashioned and inserted for publication, the manuscripts show that in his sermons he endeavored clearly and distinctly to explain the doctrines of religion and unravel the difficulties that attend them and to confirm them with strength of reason and argumentation and also to observe some easy and clear method for the help of the understanding and memory. Doctrine, however, never stands abstracted from the claims of God and His truth on the human soul. He was, in Warfield's words, as arresting and awakening as he was instructive. Edward's sermons, <coughs> sermon instruction in doctrine always came with a view to grip the heart with conviction, confession, repentance, adoration, or other responses implicit within the doctrine. Because he was himself filled with the profoundest sense of the heinousness of sin, Edward set himself to arouse his hearers to some realization of the horror of their condition as objects of the divine displeasure and of the incredible goodness of God in intervening for their salvation. Warfield says, side by side with the most moving portrayal of God's love in Christ and of the blessedness of communion with Him, he therefore set, with the most startling effect, equally vivid pictures of the dangers of unforgiven sin and the terrors of the lost estate. The effect of such preaching, delivered with the force of the sincerest conviction, was overwhelming. Illustrations of this methodology abound. The power of his approach can be seen by isolating the applicatory element of human duty or affection to which his doctrine applies. <clears throat> For example, in his treatment of theology proper, Edwards unfolds the divine attributes with a view to convince the hearers of the perfection of joy found in knowing and contemplating this ineffably perfect being for himself. <clears throat> Conversely, he demonstrates the infinite criminality of the giving anything less than perfect worship, a danger of graceless knowledge of God's attributes. In a message entitled The Christian Pilgrim, Edwards describes heaven as the place where our highest end and highest good is to be obtained. Since we are made for God, we are attained to our highest end only when we are brought into heaven. Here we have a very, perfect, a very imperfect knowledge of Him and a very imperfect conformity to God mingled with abundance of estrangement. We can serve Him, but in a very imperfect manner and always mingled with sin. But in heaven... We shall be brought into a perfect union with God and have more clear views of Him. There will be no remaining sin to hinder a perfect service of God. Seeing Him as He is, as he is 
will so alter our affections, so purify our hearts in a flame of divine love that we will that we will glorify him to the utmost of the powers and capacities of our nature. Since God is the highest good and the reasonable creature and enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied, the full enjoyment in heaven is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. All human loves and comforts are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance Earthly goods are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. They are but small streams, but God is the fountain. They are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only in a journey toward heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness. Conversely, <clears throat> a failure to appreciate the beauty and loveliness of the divine nature is the essence of sin. Edwards reasons particularly strongly on this in a sermon, True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. In this sermon, Edwards highlights the full spectrum of systematic and experimental knowledge in order to isolate the one thing by which true grace may be identified. His assumption or doctrine is built on James 2.19. His doctrine says, Nothing in the mind of man that is of the same nature with what, dwelt, with what the devils experience or are the subjects of is any sure sign of saving grace. This one thing that Edward pinpoints as an apprehension of, of or sense of the supreme holy beauty and comeliness of divine things as they are in themselves or in their own nature. Now, though they once had it, that is, the demons once had it, while they stood in their integrity, they now and forever will be entirely destitute of this. Nothing else belonging to the knowledge of God can be devised of which he is destitute. It has been observed that there is no one attribute of the divine nature but what he knows with a strong and very affecting conviction. The supreme beauty of the divine nature only engenders hate in Satan. His understanding of the attributes of God gives him an idea and a strong sense of his awful majesty, but no idea of his beauty and comeliness. The application of all of his powers through thousands of years to understand God's ways and purposes, his taking things in all possible views in every order and arrangement brings him no closer to seeing things as beautiful that wherein the beauty of the divine nature does most essentially consist, that is, holiness or his moral excellence. Instead, the devil and his demons hate such a holy being the worse, for his being infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, more than they would do if they saw, him in, saw in him less power and less wisdom. That unregenerate men share the same view of God as the devil's, is the theme of his sermon, Men Naturally Are God's Enemies. Men are enemies in the natural relish of their souls. When they learn that God is an infinitely holy, pure, and righteous being, their distaste for him increases for that very reason. His omnipotence, his omniscience, immutability, and even mercy are all hated because these attributes are holy, and he will never be otherwise than he is, an infinitely holy God. Edwards' applicatory scheme in Christology 
both the incarnation and the atonement, was to convince his hearers of the wisdom and the inviolability of the character of God while demonstrating the infinite approvedness, suitability, beauty, and perfection of Christ. <clears throat> As in theology, these discussions have the rightful reality of human depravity as their foil. In unbelievers condemn the glory and excellence of Christ, Christ's attributes emerge in a brilliance that makes human depravity despicable and repulsive. Sinners neither love nor have honor for the glory and excellence of Christ. They have no desires to enjoy or be conformed to the glorious beauty of Christ. Not only do they have no value for His glory, they are enemies to Him on that very account. His glorious perfections are the very ground of that enmity and opposition which inflames their hearts against Him. He says, by being such a holy and excellent Savior, He is contrary to your lust and your corruptions. If there were a Savior offered to you that was agreeable to your corrupt nature, such a Savior you would accept. But Christ, being a Savior of such purity, holiness, and divine perfection, this is the cause why you have no inclination to Him, but you are offended in Him. <clears throat> Christ's incarnation shows the superiority of divine wisdom to created wisdom, a consistent theme of Edwards. This idea carries the day in the wisdom of God displayed in the way of salvation. If indeed the Son of God be substituted in the sinner's stead, then he becomes obligated to suffer the punishment deserved by the sinner. But how could one who is essentially unchangeably and infinitely happy suffer pain and torment? And how could the object of God's infinitely dear love suffer his wrath? Created wisdom would never have superseded these difficulties. But divine wisdom has found out a way, that is, by the incarnation of the Son of God. Through a great mystery, a yea, impossible to us, it was no mystery to divine wisdom. Though Christ is a glorious person, perfectly fit as a Savior, He has sufficient power, wisdom, merit, and love to satisfy justice and fulfill the law for us. The wisdom of God through the Incarnation procures perfect and everlasting happiness. In Christ's work, we may see God face to face, converse and dwell with God in His own glorious habitation. The most abundant riches, the most substantial satisfying pleasures, all needed earthly good things while here, and glory for both body and soul hereafter, forever, are purchased by Christ. In spite of such rich provision, sinners remain in the same miserable state and condition, in a famishing, perishing state. You remain dead in trespasses and sins, Edwards warned, under the dominion of Satan in a condemned state, having the wrath of God abiding on you and being daily exposed to the dreadful effects of it in hell. In light of such extreme pleasures on the one hand and danger on the other, Edwards pled with his hearers to turn to God through Jesus Christ, be numbered among the disciples and faithful followers, and so be entitled to all of their privileges. The reader of Edwards' sermons quickly learns that the doctrinal nexus he conceives hardly allows one doctrine to be considered without feeling the immediate implications it has for others. A major component in his analysis of the whole system of divine truth is the connection of each part to human depravity and spiritual affections. As heir to the Puritans and particularly influenced by his grandfather, Edwards devoted massive energy and time to the exploration of these issues. His purpose in 
This spiritual surgery was to strip his hearers of all false ideas of faith. Solomon Stoddard wrote an evangelism manual for ministers in his preface to Guide to Christ or the way of directing souls that are under the work of conversion, compiled for the help of young ministers, the famous grandfather of Jonathan Edwards said, multitudes of souls perish through the ignorance of those that should guide them in the way to heaven. Men are nourished up with vain hopes of being in a state of salvation before they have got halfway to Christ. Edwards followed in this train, fearing that many allowed common operations of the Spirit or even extraordinary human gifts to serve as sufficient evidence of God's saving favor. By this means, he warned, it is to be feared that very many have deceived, have been deceived and established in a false hope. Ministers must not allow their hearers or must not allow sinners to rest in their self-centered subterfuges to which they flee to avoid repentance toward God and faith in Christ. But they must operate out of that new sense of things. Multitudes have been deluded by a false view of faith and conversion. Conversion comes only where a glimpse of the moral and spiritual glory of God along with supreme amiableness of Jesus Christ and salvation by Him shining in the heart. <clears throat> this view overcomes all opposition and as it were by an omnipotent power inclines the soul to Christ. Edwards preached, Therefore it is manifest from my text and doctrine that no degree of speculative knowledge of religion is any certain sign of true piety. Whatever clear notions a man may have of the attributes of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of the two covenants, the economy of the persons of the Trinity, and the part, and the part which each person has in the affair of man's redemption, if he can discourse never so excellency on the offices of Christ and the way of salvation by him and the admirable methods of divine wisdom and the harmony of the various attributes of God in that way, if he can talk never so clearly and exactly of the method of justification of a sinner and of the nature of conversion and the operations of the Spirit of God and applying the redemption to Christ, giving good distinctions, happily dissolving difficulties and answering objections in a manner tending greatly to enlighten the ignorant to the edification of the church and of God, uh, edification of the church of God and the conviction of gainsayers, and to the great increase of light in the world, if he has more knowledge of this sort than hundreds of true saints of an ordinary education and most divines, yet all is no certain evidence of any degree of saving faith in the heart. No speculative knowledge, Edwards would say, no speculative assent, no sense of distress and terrors about sin and evil or the future, no work of the law on men's hearts is a sure sign of conversion. In fact, so bound are sinners to themselves in their own self-interest that only an act of sovereign grace can bestow this gift. It is most clearly at the point of depravity that Edwards, demonstration, Edwards demonstrates the coherence of his Calvinism with all the doctrines of salvation. This sense of the sublimity of God's holiness is what flesh and blood cannot impart. Only God can bestow it, and it is the special benefit which Christ died to procure for His elect, the most excellent token of His everlasting love, the chief fruit of His great labors, and the most precious purchase of His blood. Edward showed an ability to maintain a principle relentlessly, and no matter how many details and specific points were included in that general truth, they must all apply in accordance with the principle. 
He did not want to allow sinners rest in anything short of the distinguishing principle of saving grace. Though this grace was applied in a sovereign manner, in accordance with an eternal decree, though only the elect finally would be recipients, all must put themselves in the way of faith and pursue it with great pains, though in the end they die in mercy's door. He regularly exhorted all to seek those distinguishing qualifications and affections of soul which are distinctive of salvation. He looked at salvation as a great undertaking to be firmly, universally, and perseveringly pursued. Though none can merit it, and it is sovereignly bestowed by, the free, and sovereign, by free and sovereign grace, yet men have no reason to expect to be saved in idleness or to get to heaven in a way of doing nothing. That is from a sermon entitled, <clears throat> The Manner of Seeking Salvation. Sinners should seek to do all the duties that God requires of them. Do them devotedly and do them constantly. This is, a part, this is the influence of the preparationism on them, to put themselves in the way of salvation. Salvation is a great work which requires all energy and a daily taking up the cross. Men must be diligent in the use of the means of grace and be anxiously engaged to escape eternal ruin and afterwards to persevere in the duties of religion till the flood of death come. Clearly this cannot be done to merit salvation, but such labor is necessary in order to their being prepared for it. No one can be prepared for salvation without seeking it in such a way as hath been described. Such seeking gives a proper sense of their own necessities and unworthiness. It predisposes them to prize salvation when bestowed, and it makes the seeker properly thankful to God for it. Men should be willing to engage in this business no matter how great and difficult it is, seeing that their own salvation is at stake. To serve as a goad to prompt seeking, Edwards preached so as to convince his hearers of the reality of hell that they might contemplate all of its revealed characteristics with a view to avoid going there. Edwards invoked all of his literary, philosophic, and exegetical powers to convince them of the rationality, the justness, and therefore the, certain, the certainty of eternal punishment. They should feel the emptiness of any hope that hell either has no existence or only temporal existence. They should not consider for a moment that hell is reserved for only the most heinous criminals or is tempered with mercy. He was relentless in the development of images to dissuade them of any hope that the experience of hell might be punctuated with reprieve. Edwards preached many sermons on this subject, not because he harbored a masochistic delight in the subject of hell, but for three reasons. One, the subject demonstrated the power of worldly affections over the reasoning capacity. In his sermon entitled, The Unreasonableness of Indetermination in Religion, Edwards enforces the unreasonableness of delay because of the infinite importance of the issue of eternal life. Also, we are reasonable creatures and invested with all the capacities to weigh the evidence, determine the truthfulness of Christian doctrine, and to make a wise choice for ourselves. He hath given man so much understanding as to make him capable of determining which is best, to lead a life of self-denial and enjoy eternal happiness, or to take our swing in sinful enjoyments and burn in hell forever. The question is of no difficult determination. The complicating factors, however, involve fallen affections. 
God offers heaven with self-denial and difficulty as the way to it, and sinners are not willing to have it on these conditions. On the other hand, God offers the world and the pleasures of sin to men, but not alone. Connected with it is eternal misery. Those halting between two opinions would divide heaven from the holiness and self-denial which are the way to it, and from the holiness which reigns in it. On those terms, they would be glad to have heaven. By the same token, if they could divide sin from hell, then they would fully determine forever to cleave to sin. As Edwards enforces the urgency of immediate determination in this matter, he reasserts, consider those things which have been said, showing the unreasonableness of continuing in such irresolution about an affair of infinite importance to you. Though warned often of the boundless fury of the wrath of God, like the shoreless ocean of Noah's flood, the unregenerate act more brutish than animals in thrusting themselves on the sword of God's wrath. They act like the mad prophet Balaam who insisted on going forward through an angel with the sword drawn in the way. <clears throat> Second, Edwards preached the doctrine of hell that none should doubt the infinite criminality of refusal to love an infinitely lovely being. In unbelievers condemn the glory of Christ, <clears throat> the infinite excellencies of the Redeemer both in His person and His work are set forth by compelling images, analogies, and theological arguments. Edward shows that God the Father has infinitely high affections for Christ and His work. Is He thus worthy of the infinite esteem and love of God Himself, he asks, and is He worthy of no esteem from you? If not, then you must be aware of your danger, for such guilt will bring great wrath. If a Savior would be offered who did not have such glorious perfections and excellencies and was not so opposite to your lust and your corruptions, you would accept Him well enough. But Christ's divine perfections offend you. Consider how provoking your unbelief is to God the Father and what wrath it merits from the Son whom you treat thus. The third reason that the preaching of, for the preaching of hell that uh, the preaching of hell highlights the power and gratuity which actuates saving grace. Edwards loved to exalt the wisdom and grace of God and the glory of Christ in redeeming the elect from punishment. In themselves, the elect are miserable captives of sin and Satan and under obligations to suffer eternal burnings. But Christ is above all evil in what he did to procure redemption for us. And when the devils and all of their instruments are cast into the lake of fire to their consummate and everlasting misery, the saints shall be delivered everlastingly from it. The work of redemption, Edward said, is of the most gracious and glorious of all of God's works that are made known to us. And this is one thing wherein its glory eminently appears, that therein Christ appears so gloriously above Satan and all of his instruments, above all guilt, all corruption, all affliction, above death, above all evil. John Gerstner has said, Edwards spent every waking moment trying to keep people out of hell. Titles of sermons preached on this subject are Wrath upon the wicked to the uttermost, the wicked useful in their destruction only, men naturally God's enemies, a series of sermons on the future punishment of the wicked, sinners in the hands of an angry God. In the day of wrath, the damned themselves will have a clear conviction of its justice. Edwards preaches. <clears throat> we have this expression often annexed to God's threatenings of wrath to his enemies. 
and they shall know that I am the Lord. This shall be accomplished by their woeful experience and clear light in their consciences, whereby they shall be made to know whether they will or not how great and terrible, holy and righteous a God, Jehovah is, whose authority they have despised. And they shall know that he is righteous and holy in their destruction. This all the ungodly will be convinced of at the day of judgment by the bringing to light of all their wickedness of heart and practice and setting all their sins with all of their aggravations in order, not only in the view of others, even of the whole world, but in view of their own consciences. When the king of heaven and earth comes to judgment, their consciences will be so perfectly enlightened and convinced by the all-searching light they shall then stand in that their mouths will be effectually stopped as to all excuses for themselves, all pleading of their own righteousness to excuse or justify them, and all objections against the justice of their judge, that their conscience will condemn them only and not God. Seeing that such punishments are just heightens the concept that salvation is by grace alone. Thus was a mar this was a marvelous truth to Edwards, and he desired his hearers to know that their hope rested in the mercy of God alone. Salvation must be by the almighty working of God, both externally and internally, objectively and subjectively. He sorted out for his parishioners how unreasonable they would be to imagine that they could put God under obligation to have respect to anything they did while still his enemy. None of their prayers, reading, attending, or preparation of any sort would change either the justness of the verdict of condemnation or the enmity of their hearts. Such shows of respect and kindness are abhorrent to God. It equals treachery like that of Joab who inquired concerning Amasa's help, health while he thrust a knife into him. What if you do pray to God? Is he obliged to hear the prayers of an enemy? What if you have taken a great deal of pains? Is God obliged to give heaven for the prayers of an enemy? He may justly abhor your prayers in all that you do in religion as the flattery of a mortal enemy. Grace, therefore, is necessary in such a condition. All of our blessings, all that we have are by purchase, and the purchase is made of God. All the blessings come from God. He gives the price. He gives uh, he gives the price for the purchase, or rather he gives the purchaser, and God himself is the purchase, is the purchaser. Yea, God is both the purchaser and the price. For Christ, who is God, purchased these blessings for us by offering up himself as the price of our salvation. In order to purchase eternal life, he sacrificed himself. By the sacrifice of himself, he purchased pardon from sin and deliverance from hell. By Christ's righteousness, we have also purchased for us the favor of God and satisfying happiness. That is a happiness that is fully answerable to the capacity and cravings of our souls. He has purchased for us an eternal vision of God, conversation and communion with Him, conformity to Him, and eternal praise of Him. Christians are possessors of all things, incorruptible riches in heaven, but he also makes them qualified for these gifts. We must repent and believe, but as we cannot do this of ourselves, Christ has purchased this for all the elect. He also purchases their perseverance and holiness, and by his death he has made sure that all remaining sin will be taken out of their hearts at death. They shall be made perfectly holy. Everything outside of us and inside of us is a result of purchase and is bestowed in a sovereign way. 
Christ has purchased all, both objective and inherent good. Not only a portion to be enjoyed by us, but all those inherent qualifications necessary to our enjoyment of it. He has purchased not only justification, but sanctification and glorification, both holiness and happiness. This aspect of the preaching cries for our attention. For at this very point, preaching was notably altered from the second decade of the 19th century to the present. When Edwards noticed the tendency in some of the Boston preachers to compromise on this aspect of the message, he preached in a public lecture in Boston in 1731 a message entitled, God Glorified in Man's Dependence. His second point of use at the close of the sermon serves as a prophetic warning for the future of preaching. <clears throat> Hence, those doctrines and schemes of divinity that are in any respect opposite to such absolute and universal dependence on God derogate from His glory and thwart the design of our redemption. Are such and such are those schemes that put the creature in God's stead in any of the mentioned respects that exalt man into the place of either Father, Son, or Holy Ghost in anything pertaining to our redemption. However, they may allow of a dependence of the redeemed on God, yet they deny a dependence that is so absolute and universal. They own an entire dependence on God for some things, but not for others. They own that we depend on God for the gift and acceptance of a Redeemer, but deny so absolute a dependence on Him for the obtaining of an interest in the Redeemer. They own an absolute dependence on the Father for giving His Son and on the Son for working out redemption, but not so entire a dependence on the Holy Ghost for conversion and a being in Christ and so coming to a title to His benefits. They own a dependence on God for means of grace, but not absolutely for the benefit and success of those means. A partial dependence on the power of God for obtaining and exercising holiness, uh, <clears throat> but not a mere dependence on the arbitrary and sovereign grace of God. They own a dependence on the free grace of God for a reception into His favor, so far as that is without any proper merit, but not as, as it is without being attracted or moved with any excellency. They own a partial dependence on Christ as He through whom we have life, as having purchased new terms of life, but still hold that the righteousness through which we have life is inherent in ourselves, as it was under the first covenant. Now, whatever scheme is inconsistent with our entire dependence on God for all, and of having all of Him, through Him, and in Him, it is repugnant to the design and tenor of the gospel and robs it of that which God accounts its luster and its glory. A theory of preaching which confronted and denied that very idea which Edwards considered paramount changed not only the doctrinal content of preaching but eventually relegated doctrines to the ignoble status of the missing link in the process. The converting power of the will became more prominent than the place of truth as the medium fit for the converting work of the Spirit. As conversion came to be more in the hands of men, sinners were less and less convinced that they were in the hands of an angry God. The power and passion of Edwards receded into the distant past of literary curiosities to be viewed with puzzlement in high school American literature classes. Even more puzzlement, however, would define the faces present in the ordinary pastor's conference today. 
should Edward somehow span the centuries and remind the gathering of the sobering responsibility being entrusted with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Thank you for listening to the weekly discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.